This evening, congregation, we would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1072. We'll be reading Micah 3 in its entirety. This evening, we'll limit our attention especially to verses 5 through 8. Micah 3, hear now the reading of the Word of God. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds." Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips." For there is no answer from God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And thus far our reading from Scripture. And again, this evening we focus our attention especially upon verses 5 through 8 of Micah 3. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ if you just pause for a moment this evening and reflect upon our experience of living within this world, you will probably admit that there are many, many sounds. Many sounds. Even living in a small community, even living in a small town, and perhaps living in a rural community, still there are many, many sounds. There are the animals that make sounds. Uh, there is the equipment that makes sounds. There is traffic that makes sounds. There is just the hustle and bustle of people, and of course, people make sounds. We speak most uh, notably of the sound that people make with their talking. Now, some people are given to talking more frequently than others, and so we might comment about a certain man, well, he is a soft-spoken man, a man of few words, and that indeed can be a good thing, for all of us will have to give an account for every word which we speak, words which even this world counts as mere jest. Others, we might say, seem to have a tongue that runs without ever stopping. Maybe you've had the opportunity to converse with somebody and you wonder how in the world they even take time to catch a breath, as one word simply follows another word in rapid and seeming unended succession. So among the sounds that we hear as we live in this life, there is the sound of human communication. And when we evaluate human communication, our words ultimately fall in one of two categories. They are either words of truth or they are words that are lies. 
The same could be said about the prophets, uh, those unique men within the nation of Israel, within the covenant community of God, those prophets who had the divine commission to receive the word of God from God and then to proclaim that word of God to the people of God. And that especially was what a prophet was supposed to do. A prophet was a man who had been uniquely called by God and he had the mantle of this office and his Solemn responsibility was to hear what the Lord would say to the covenant people of Israel and then to communicate that word faithfully without adding or subtracting from it unto the people of God. Uh, Now the words of the prophets could be evaluated and they could fall into one of two categories. Either words of truth, that which actually accorded with what the Lord himself had said, or words of falsehood, that which did not accord with what the Lord said has said. And God gave the covenant people of Israel clear categories. Uh, The prophet who repeated the word of the Lord was considered a true prophet. But a prophet who distorted the word of God by either adding to it or taking from it was to be identified as a false prophet. And we want to look at this passage this evening uh, with these verses 5 through 8. Uh, in light of this distinction that the Word of God makes between true prophets and false prophets, and we'll notice that the theme that we put over top of this section of Scripture is that the Lord condemns false prophets for lies. The Lord condemns false prophets for lies. And just pause there for a moment on the theme. And boys and girls, have you ever had it where you said something, and then someone else said that you said something different? told a lie about what you said. Uh, Maybe it's your brother or your sister. Maybe it's a a fellow classmate at school. And it kind of makes you angry. And, And rightfully so. No one likes their words to be twisted or to be distorted. This is why God gives a commandment against bearing false testimony. But the Lord also is stirred to a holy indignation when his words are twisted, when his words are distorted. And so the Lord condemns false prophets for their lies. And as we unfold this theme this evening, we'll notice, first of all, the description of the false prophets, and then secondly, the judgment on the false prophets, and then thirdly, the contrast to the false prophets. The Lord condemns false prophets for lies, the description, the judgment, and the contrast to the false prophets. If you remember the previous context, uh, verse 1 records a word of Micah, really the word of the Lord, but the word that comes through Micah, condemning the princes, condemning those individuals who in the theocracy of Israel had the unique position of being the civil rulers. And the civil rulers were perverting justice in the streets. Uh, They were receiving bribes. And by their bribes, they would reward those who were well-off, those who were rich. And by those same bribes, they would often judge against those who were of lower economic means. And now this was not just some simple personal uh, affiliation that the princes had with certain individuals, but rather this was a gross perversion of equity or of justice. Having condemned the princes, there also comes in our text the condemnation against false prophets. And notice the way that their description is given in relation to the message. False prophets had and will continue to exist. 
And the clearest way to identify a false prophet is to examine his message. Now notice the text is very plain. These false prophets ultimately had one word. The one word was peace. They were peace-loving men. They were peace-speaking men. In essence, they were going around, and you'll notice this stated quite plainly in verse 5. They were going around chanting uh, over and over and over, uh, like a one drumbeat, playing continuously, peace, peace, peace. And, and by this message, uh, these prophets would have been rather well received. We all like to hear messages of peace more than we like to hear messages of war. I, I don't know anyone uh, who finds great delight when they turn on the television news and, and they see the report uh, of an invasion of, of another country. And when we see the imagery uh, of rockets and of bombs and of the destruction that such rockets and bombs bring, if we look with glee upon such imagery, there's probably something seriously wrong with us morally. All of us, we, we like to hear about peace. And these false prophets, they knew that. And this peace has the idea of prosperity, of wellness, of completeness. And so these prophets in Israel, they would go from station to station, from home to home, from community to community, and they would say, all is well, all is good, all is complete, all is well and all is good and all is complete uh, in the nation of Israel and also in relationship to Almighty God. Now we might say, well, what is wrong with that? Is that not part of the Messianic proclamation that there is the Prince of Peace and that there is peace to the captives and a redemptive liberation? Yes, that is part of the gospel message. But that gospel message must be proclaimed to those who truly have peace by way of a reconciled relationship to the triune God through genuine repentance and sincere faith. And see, this was the problem. This was the falseness of their message. These false prophets, they proclaimed peace on one hand, you might say, indiscriminately. And yet there was a note of discrimination. Because they, they declared peace to those in Israel who were at the top of the social status. And so you'll notice it's, it's kind of put in colorful language who make my people stray. You chant peace while they chew with their teeth. And so the idea is uh, that the prophets, if they would receive something good, something materially good from a people, even as they stuffed their faces, so to speak, with those material goods, they would say, peace to you. Everything is well with you. You've given me that which my lust desire, and therefore I will proclaim peace. So false prophets are bought. They're bought and they have no discretion within their message except this, that if they are well taken care of, they will proclaim peace. On the other hand, you notice that those who are on the bottom end of the social system, to them, well, then there was no peace. They prepared war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So not only was there the absence of the proclamation of peace to those who were on the bottom end of the social status, there was actually uh, the aggression against such persons the exploiting of the poor. And so the false prophets in Israel, if you or if I were well-meaned, if we were a, a person who had financial means, the false prophets, they'd come figuratively speaking, and they would rub our back and they would say, oh, everything is good in Israel. Everything is whole. 
Everything is complete. But if you and I were one of the bottom members of the social system, then the prophets would strategize how to exploit even that little that we had. And that identifies also the motivation for these false prophets. They were not motivated out of love for God. They were not motivated out of love for their fellow man. They were strictly motivated out of love for themselves. And I can't help but think of Eli's sons. As they ministered, now the, the point of comparison is a bit different because they were in the capacity of being a priest, not a prophet, but the motivation was the same. Eli's sons, what were they after? Filling their own bellies. Satisfying their own lust. Using the office of priest to gain the power to exploit the lesser members in the community to satisfy their own wicked and foolish desires. And Micah notices that something is going on similar in his day. The false prophets, oh, they have words without end, but the word is always the same, at least to the well-off. Oh, peace. And to those who are not well-off, well, uh, then there was the motivation to exploit them. And the impact and the reason, you might say, why the Lord is stirred to such holy indignation is that the impact of these prophetic messages is that it continues to lead Israel to stray. It continues to lead Israel uh, far off uh, into uh, apostasy. So notice there in verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. We've already talked about these prophets said peace to those who were rich, and they plotted against those who were poor. But notice the first phrase there, who make my people stray. Now certainly the Lord is stirred to wrath because of the falsification of his word. But he's stirred to wrath and anger because these false words are causing his covenantal people to stray. And the word there, stray, synonyms might be to wander. And you then get the imagery so often used in the Old Testament of a shepherd leading the sheep. And the under-shepherd in this case, the prophets, they were leading their sheep, but they were leading the sheep to stray. They were leading the sheep away from the green pastures of the Word of God. They were leading the sheep out into the wilderness, out into the midst of danger, out into the midst of spiritual deprivation. And because the Lord has a covenantal love for the remnant of Israel, even though in His providence He would lead Israel off into captivity, he still has his bond of affection with the remnant, and those are in danger also of being led into apostasy by these false prophets. And this, of course, is the seriousness of the air. Uh, this is why uh, many of us and many of our forefathers have taken costly stands on the authority of the Word of God, so that when a new hermeneutic came into existence, uh, men and women were moved with a holy zeal to take a stand and say, no, we cannot allow this to continue within our churches because of its impact. It will lead people astray. This is why we become somewhat uh, agitated, you might say, when we see theological liberalism, especially as it encroaches into the church. Because we know the end of the road of theological liberalism is apostasy. And yes, you can find many a man who will stand behind a wooden box and just preach peace, peace. 
But that ultimately is not to be the evaluation. The evaluation must be, does this man bring us the word of God? Adding nothing to it, taking nothing away from it. The false prophets were motivated by their own lustful desires. And so they had a unique message for those who are well off in society. The unique message was peace at all costs. And yet that was the most deadly message because it caused the people to go astray. And so the Lord rises up. As we transition into the second point, just let us note the serious danger of false prophets. And let us then have ears of discernment. As we said before, we say it again, the clearest way to identify a false prophet is to evaluate his words with an open Bible. If his words do not match the Bible, you have a false prophet. If his words do match the Bible, you have a faithful prophet. Judgment in our second point would come upon the false prophets because of their sinful motives and because of their dreadful impact. The manner of the judgment, there is a note of irony. Uh, the judgment would be silence. Silence. Notice again in our text, in verse 5, these false prophets, they chant over and over and over, they chant peace. Verse 6, a remarkable contrast. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. I want to say, boys and girls, there's something, there's something beautiful about a dark night. You, know, you go out there, especially if the, if the sky is clear, you see all the stars and their brilliancy. Maybe you can even identify some of the constellations. But there's also something incredibly frightening about dark nights. Especially really, really dark nights. Dark nights without any light. It can strike fear in the soul. And the Lord God says to Israel, my judgment is going to come upon these false prophets and you're going to have darkness. Not physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. Darkness of silence. It's also, if you think about it, and, and here parents in illustration, if you... Think about a relationship, the most difficult and painful thing is silence. Some of us know that very, very powerfully and painfully as the ravages of age come upon an elderly person, maybe as dementia or Alzheimer's takes over their mind and you lose the inability, or rather you lose the ability to communicate with a person. And you feel like you've lost them. Or you can think of a parent calling out for their child in a store, and there's no answer. We have that saying, the silence is deafening. Israel was about to find out that indeed the silence would be absolutely deafening. You can think of the, what we call the intertestamental period, that period between the closing of the Old Testament when the last prophet fell silent to when John the Baptist broke the silence 400 years later. You can think also uh, of that remarkable statement made in reference to the days of Samuel 
uh, when the candlestick was about to be extinguished in the temple, when the word of God was rare. You can think of the devastation that comes upon a covenant community when the word of God is rare. The Lord rises up and he says, I am going to judge the false prophets. They have been speaking for a long time empty words of peace. Their words will be taken away from them. And judgment upon the itching ears who gathered around these false prophets was that these itching ears would have no more word from the Lord. Now there is, of course, an irony here. The irony is that those false prophets who pretended they had so much to say, they'll find themselves without anything to say. And this would become painfully evident as God's providence began to exile the southern tribes also into captivity. You see, it was one thing when, when socially things were okay, as it was in the days of Micah. Remember now, in the days of Micah, uh, the exile is, is a bit on the horizon yet. Uh, and socially, economically, things are relatively good, especially for the upper class. Uh, in common terms, we might say the stock market was rising. And so those who had some means in the covenant community, they would have turned on their televisions, and they would have seen the stocks are up again today, and they would have been glad, and they would have said, come, let us eat, drink, and be merry, and let us get one of those false prophets. Now, of course, they wouldn't have identified him as a false prophet. Let's get one of those prophets to come over and tell us, peace, peace. Now let us make our plans and say, tomorrow we will go here, and tomorrow we will do that, and, and then these next things. Let's tear down our small barns and build even bigger barns because everything is well and everything is going to be even better tomorrow. And the Lord says, well, I am going to shut the false prophets up and I'm going to do that uh, as I exile you out of the promised land. Because now imagine how empty those words would have sounded as you made the trek out of the promised land, as you walked away from your home, your place of business, as all your financial means are devastated, taken away, and as you begin the long and brutal march into captivity, now do you think the words peace, peace would have any meaning to them? As you began the walk into exile, if one had come next to you and said, peace, peace, you probably would have said, be quiet. There is no peace. There is no wholeness. There is no completeness. We are in exile. Let us hang our harps on the willows. How can we sing a song about Zion here in a foreign land? There is a certain note of irony in God's judgment. This irony ought not to be lost on us, but it also should not just be historically boxed into the days of Micah. I'd ask you to turn to at least one cross-reference, and that is Revelation chapter 2, one of the churches there, of the seven churches that are addressed. We do well to remind ourselves that these were actual, particular, local congregations. The number of seven, of course, represents the fullness. So when John writes to these particular churches, he writes to the church universal, but this was an actual congregation. There were people there uh, in this church, uh, and John, more specifically, Christ, addresses uh, the church in Ephesus. And he says many good things about them. I know your works, in verse 2, your labor, your patience. So you cannot bear those who are evil. 
You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered. But then notice verse 4. Nevertheless, the reading of that word ought to cause us to take special attention. This was a church of God. This was a faithful church of God. But it was not a perfect church of God. Nevertheless, Christ Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That was true also of Israel in the days of Micah. They had left their first love. That first love being of that covenantal fellowship with the triune God. And then comes this sobering exhortation. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And then notice this, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand, symbolic there of the word of God as it dwelt in the midst of the people of God, giving light unto the people of God. Jesus Christ says with a holy jealousy, if the church loses its first love, and if it does not repent in humility and, and seek that which is first, that which is foremost, that which is the primacy act, he would come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And, and this, of course, underscores uh, what happens in many, many, many a church. And I don't know exactly how it is in our own community. I reflect back upon the community in which I spent the first 44 years of my life. Uh, and, and you can now drive up and down the streets of western Michigan uh, on any given Sunday, especially if it's in the afternoon hours or the evening hours, and you can find a host of buildings that used to house congregations now empty. Absolutely empty. Even the lights have been turned off. Many of the building is either for sale or has been sold. Now we can ask ourselves, and we should ask ourselves, what happened? Because you can also hear evidence and testimony from those who used to labor in the gospel ministry on the other side of the pond, so to speak, uh, in the European landscape, whether it be in the Netherlands, whether it be in uh, the British Isles. And you can ask them, what is the state of the church there in the Netherlands? What is the state of the church there in Scotland and in England? They will say the state of the church is sad. The congregations are small, dwindling, if they are even existent. Now, thanks be to God, there is the remnant. There are the proverbial 7,000 who have not been the knee. But lest we take pride and think that we are so different, if you step back for a moment, and many of you have been blessed with long life, and you can reflect back upon a day and an age in which perhaps the churches were filled to capacity. Now, we should not just simply have this sort of speak love for a former day, but we ought to evaluate what has happened. Is it at least part of the answer that God is judging false prophets who said, peace, peace, especially to those who have financial means, peace, peace. When there was no peace. And now the darkness of night comes upon the church and the community and the land as an ironic sort of judgment. And thinking about this and also just reflecting upon the invasion of the Ukraine, and this is in no way as some political commentary from the pulpit. I profess that 
politics are those things which are too great for me, too high for my understanding. I just use this as a point of analogy as I reflected upon uh, the invasion of the Ukraine. I, I thought back uh, approximately uh, 70 or 80 years ago. September 30, 1938, the British Prime Minister at that time, Neville Chamberlain, returned home from Germany. He was greeted in 1938 by a most rowdy celebration of those who were inhabitants of England. Now perhaps some of you know the story. Why was everyone so happy? Why was everyone cheering the return of their prime minister? Well, he had just signed a peace treaty with Adolf Hitler. 1938, he came, that is, Neville Chamberlain, saying, peace, peace. And everyone clapped and everyone cheered. How empty do you think those words sounded when the night skies over London opened up with the flashes of bombs from the plains of the Third Reich? Do you think people hid underneath the bomb shelters as they heard the sirens go off and thought with fondness upon Chamberlain's prophecy that there would be peace? Absolutely not. The cold, hard reality of war revealed the emptiness of those words. And so also the cold, hard reality of God's judgment does and will reveal the words of emptiness of the false prophets. Let us be duly warned. But there's a contrast, thankfully, in Scripture. And that contrast is with true prophets. Now this will be unfolded. Uh, you might debate whether, if you look back at our text, whether verse 8 goes with the text that I've selected or whether it goes with what follows. I, I believe it's kind of a bridge text. Verse 8 follows, of course, the context of verses 5 through 7, and it prepares the way for verse 9 because there the true prophet will speak. But for our purposes this evening, allow just a few points of reflection upon this contrast. The true prophet has a different motivation. The true prophet of God is not motivated by a desire to win the acclaims of mere men. The true prophet is not motivated by a desire uh, to fill his belly or to satisfy carnal lust at the expense of the congregation of God's people. The true prophet does not speak well to those who are well off and woe to those who are not financially independent. The true prophet has a soul and a heart that burns with a zeal for God and for the word of God. So notice verse 8, but truly, this is Micah's words, I am full of power by the spirit of the Lord and of justice and might. So the true prophet, if you would understand what makes him different, is that the spirit of the Lord dwells upon him and dwells within him, giving him both insight into the word of God, but also then giving him uh, a fire in his belly, so to speak, to proclaim that word of God uh, with a sense of earnest urgency. And so we are simply reminded uh, this evening of the vital importance uh, of what an older generation, especially of theologians, used to call the unction of the Holy Spirit. Know that in and of oneself, the faithful minister cannot even stammer two intelligible words together in the pulpit. But anything that comes forth that is faithful 
and that is fruitful only comes forth in faithful fruitfulness because the Spirit of the Lord is at work within the true prophet of God. You can think perhaps of Amos, also called to be a prophet, and he would have echoed what the Apostle Paul said, not many of us who are noble are called. There Amos was, plowing the fields, walking behind the team of oxen, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You can think also of Elisha, You might say, mind his own business, engaged in a lawful vocation, again, plowing the fields. Uh, And according to God's providence, Elijah walks by and casts his mantle. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is what is vitally necessary for a faithful gospel ministry. Uh, And the main point of practical application, if we really want to take something this evening to go back to our homes and say, now this is a practice that we need to apply to our everyday lives is continue, I'm not saying that we don't do this, but continue to earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to rest upon the gospel ministry of this congregation and all of the faithful churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrestle and labor in prayer that the Lord would rend the heavens, so to speak, and come down and pour out a double portion of his Holy Spirit to grant insight into the word of God and to grant the proclamation of the word of God. And we might even say to gather people to hear the proclamation of the word of God and to produce the response of repentance and faith. Because we in and of ourselves are are mere clay pots, empty vessels. In and of ourselves we have no ability. The recognition of that is our greatest strength because that drives us continually to our knees saying, speak, Lord, for your spirit hears. So your servant might then go forth and make the proclamation because this motivation is what is so necessary, the Holy Spirit to come upon the prophet and the people who hear the prophet. And just in passing, I wonder if it would be a suitable exercise for us as a congregation to consider prayer meetings or times of concentrated prayer, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon us as a congregation and that coming upon us, that the Spirit of the Lord would then move in our communities, in our towns, and in our cities, bringing about a reformation of doctrine and of life, bringing about the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now notice when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a man, a difficult message is proclaimed. And so Micah, in remarkable contrast to the false prophets who just simply walked around from rich house to rich house saying, peace, peace, peace for everyone. Micah says, I am full of the Spirit of the Lord, of justice and of might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now working through Micah, I'm repeatedly drawn to the very end. Because Micah has a message there that I can't wait to get to. Micah 7, verse 19, speaking of how the Lord delights in mercy, he will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. That was also a message that Micah had. But notice to get to there, there has to be the identity of sins and transgressions. This message that Micah is called to proclaim is no easy message, let me assure you. Let me assure you that it is not easy to preach on sin and iniquity. It's not easy because it doesn't necessarily gain you the most popularity. It's not easy because it forces you to be confronted with the reality of your own sin and of your own transgressions. 
is not easy because it doesn't necessarily make all of the rich people smile with favorable approval upon your message. So be it. The Spirit of the Lord enabled Micah to proclaim the sins of the covenant people of Israel. And it is only the strength of the Holy Spirit coming upon office bearers that gives that holy boldness to humbly and yet also pointedly identify sin. Think of Nathan going to David. So many messages Nathan could have brought to David. Nathan could have knocked on David's door. David, all is well in the kingdom. Can I come in and dine at your royal banquet hall? David, you're doing a wonderful job. There's peace within the land. The enemies have been subdued. The neighboring kings don't even dare do battle with you. Would you mind giving me a little monetary reward for my word of peace? But the Spirit of the Lord was upon Nathan. So he did knock on David's door. David, you are the man. You are the man who has sinned. You are the man who has sinned grievously. You have another man's wife in your bed. And her husband is dead. And you did it. How could Nathan proclaim that message? Well, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. You can think also of the Apostle Paul preaching before Felix. Preaching before Priscilla, preaching a message confronting them with the reality of their sin. You can think of John the Baptist. You can think of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of the Lord gives the ability to humbly and yet pointedly identify iniquity and sin. Because you see, there is a connection. There's a connection between Micah 3, verse 8, and also then Micah 7, uh, verse 19. And maybe it's helpful to read them together, recognizing we certainly don't want to cut and paste Scripture. But Micah 3, verse 8, but truly, Micah says, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And flip forward, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So let us be reminded in closing of the desperate need for the Holy Spirit to rest upon the ministry of this church and the ministry of the faithful churches all throughout the world. And let us know that when the Holy Spirit rests upon faithful gospel ministers, those faithful gospel ministers will have the boldness to call out sin and iniquity, not just simply to leave people there, but then to point them to the God of grace and of mercy and to proclaim to the captives of Israel there is freedom through forgiveness. Forgiveness by way of confessing our sins and by finding refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is full and free and complete salvation to whom be praised both now and forevermore. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us years of discernment, for we know that there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. Uh, may we evaluate 
like the Bereans, all that we hear. May we go even to our own homes this evening and ask ourselves, are these things so? May we wrestle with the Holy Scriptures out of love for the truth of the Word of God. And Lord, we pray earnestly for your Spirit to rest powerfully upon us and within us, giving us a, a humble and a winsome boldness and conviction that we might speak the truth of the Word of God, pointing out uh, the sad reality of our sin, but never ending there, but then also pointing out the wonderful glory of the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.